Welcome to Five Books for Catholics, where an expert selects and explains five outstanding books on some aspect of Catholic life, doctrine, or culture. Charles Dickens lived from 1812 to 1870. He is one of the best-loved novelists in the English language, and arguably the greatest. Like Shakespeare, he created a host of memorable characters from all stations of life, entertained a wide public, and was equally adept as a writer of both tragedy and comedy. Whereas Shakespeare exploits his gifts as a poet and actor in his plays, Dickens, in his novels, deployed his extensive skills and experience as a journalist, often to highlight the plight of the poor and the injustices wrought by the Industrial Revolution, malfunctioning institutions and widespread indifference. This led Dostoevsky to call him the great Christian. In this interview, Professor Dwight Lindley discusses some of the best Dickens novels and studies on them. Dwight Lindley is the Barbara Longway Briggs Chair in English Literature at Hillsdale College. He has published essays and articles on Jane Austen, George Eliot, John Henry Newman, Jared Manley Hopkins, Virginia Woolf and others. He lives in southern Michigan with his wife Emily and their nine children. Professor Dwight Lindy, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Dickens was so active and productive that his life cannot be summed up in a few lines. You've recommended a biography, A.N. Wilson's The Mystery of Charles Dickens. We should discuss that at the end. However, to kick things off, are there any aspects of Dickens' biography that we should keep in mind to understand his novels properly? Well, uh, I think some of the most salient details, he was the most popular novelist of his day, uh, of the Victorian period in England. Um, He very famously rose from poverty to uh, considerable wealth just through the the publication of his novels. Um, He was very successful beginning in his mid-20s. Um, and on until his death. By the time he he died, he was one of the most famous people in England, um, and would go all over all over the country, also in America as well, um, giving <clears throat> giving um, public readings of his works, and it just brought thousands of thousands of people came, would come to see him. So. Um, he had he had a, a certainly a lot of popularity and a lot of uh, power in his in his stories and in his characters. So I, I think that alone, you know, leads should lead us to ask what does he have going on there that um, that we can um, that we can discuss that that can uh, illuminate our understanding of things. And while most Literary critics acclaim Dickens. There have been periods when many have dismissed him as a lowbrow writer. Has this ebb and flow in his standing among literary critics ceased? That's a good question. Um, I think his star has risen some over the course of the 20th century. Um, <laughs> some. Uh, let me let me put it this way. Um, 
Yeah, I, I think that he's not the most intellectual of the novelists of the 19th century, even during his own time. Uh, George Eliot, for example, was better educated and a more philosophical writer in general. Um, and so more beloved of, uh, you know, theoretical readers of English novels. Dickens is an everyman's novelist and not an intellectual in the sense that that George Eliot was. Um, and so for that reason, he didn't necessarily <clears throat> open all of the all of the the normal theoretical doors for his readers that literary critics are interested in in going through. Um, but I think that that uh, gradually the different kind of intelligence that he has has been better appreciated. Um, I wouldn't say his star has completely risen and uh, that he's massively popular now. I think there are other reasons we can go into later from his life why um, he's actually, you know, still, um, why he still bothers, you know, uh, some readers. But I don't think people hold his relative lack of education against him as they used to. And Dickens was an Anglican and professed Christianity. He wrote a private manuscript, The Life of the Lord, that he read to his children to instruct them about Jesus. His writings are informed by Christ's command to care for the poor. And he practiced what he preached. He supported his own needy relatives. He worked hard to promote charitable organizations and social causes. However, it's not entirely clear how orthodox his beliefs were. During the 1840s, he was interested in Unitarianism. And along with the rise of liberal Protestantism, he tended to reduce, reduce Christianity to morality. His Christmas stories are moralistic rather than mystagogical. His Christianity was somewhat secularist, naturalist, or as some might say, just Victorian. In that case, why should Dickens, why should Catholics read Dickens? No, it's a very good question. Um, I think the story you just gave is the typical story um, of of his religious beliefs, and I think it's, it is certainly helpful and and true up to a point. But I think that the context, um, the, the a slightly broader context, will help. His version of Christianity um, really defines itself against <clears throat> what I would call um, a more a, a kind of Calvinistic leaning evangelicalism that we might associate with the great religious revivals of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. In America, they were called you know, the Great Awakenings. Um, and there were versions of them in the UK as well. Um, the, the kind of, uh, this kind of evangelicalism really emphasized uh, the, uh, the development of faith and, the, and to the exclusion of works. And Dickens felt very strongly the need to have a, a faith that was worked out actively in love um, and in, in taking care of the people who are actually in your life. And that in that lived reality, uh, if you want almost a kind of, he had a sort of sacramental desire 
um, in that lived reality of of working out your faith, he thought that's where we most deeply encounter God and uh, and live the life of Christ. Um, so what I would say is, in his context, <laughs> he was actually trying to complete um, the the kind of the practice of faith that in in around him that he found wanting. Um, and I think, I mean, I I think there are some things that we we uh, do not find in his in his writings that we would want of religion, but I think actually in my experience, Catholic readers um, oftentimes find him more congenial than faith alone, sola fide, Protestants do, um, because. He dramatizes these encounters with Christ in the least of these, uh, these encounters with God in ser- service to, to the poor. Um, and I, I could say more of that uh, when I'm addressing individual books, but that's one thought. Dickens produced a long list of classics. Have you followed any criteria in selecting the ones included in the list? Yes, the the books I've selected for the list are <laughs> some of them are by common consent um, some of the greatest of his novels. I mean, David Copperfield, many have said, is the greatest Dickens novel. It's the one that he liked the best. Also, Bleak House is, I think, a runner-up for 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 the greatest Dickens novel, and um, and so is The Tale of Two Cities. Uh, commonly assigned partially because it's shorter than those first two big ones. Little Dorrit, I, I, I listed because it, even though it gets less attention, just because I think it's actually very, um, very apropos for our own day in a number of ways we can discuss when we get there. And then on my second list, uh, I have Hard Times, which is also frequently assigned. So I think the books that I chose of Dickens um, are a combination of my favorites and the things that I think are most relevant for our day. Combination of that plus um, books that are um, held in high opinion in general. They also happen to be the novels that Dickens published between 1849 and 1859. Was that yes. just casual or? <laughs> well, um, so I will admit I, I have a preference for the, the works of the second half of his career. Um, he, he was writing novels from 1837 until his death in 1870. He left his last work unfinished. Uh, the ones, as you say, that I have chosen are right there from the middle 10 years. Um, of his writing career and i do think i think they are the works of his maturity um there are certain elements in his earlier novels such as pickwick papers from 1930 from 1837 um and dombey and son from 1848 novels like this there there are things going on in those earlier novels that i think are wonderful um but I don't think they're quite as mature as novels, um, as as fully integrated plots. Um, 
where the, where the characters are fully fully realized and integrated into the into the whole, if that makes sense. And do you have a favorite Dickens novel? I think my favorite probably has to be David Copperfield. But that brings us right into David Copperfield, which is first on your list. Um, as you mentioned, of all his novels, this was Dick Dickens' favorite. Was this because it's the most biographical, autobiographical of his works? I think it must be in part that. Um, it's <laughs> it's a sort of uh, distant mirror of his own of his own life. Um, he calls it in the the preface, "My favorite child." Um, so, you know, every author who, who writes a book has a kind of has a kind of parental relation to that book in a certain sense. Um, it's gestated and, and, and born and all of this. Um, David Copperfield told truths about his life that he had a hard time admitting to anyone, um, even his own even his own wife and best friends, um, although these these things gradually came out um your readers may have heard if they've heard anything about dickens life that he had a period of tremendous poverty as a young child where his his parents were in debtor's prison and he had to work in a factory you know for making blacking um you know dye substances so he had to work in a factory as as a young child and this left a mark on him um which which he never really discussed in later years until he wrote this book. <laughs> um, so one of the remarkable things about Dickens is he used his novels as a way of investigating his own life, as a way of talking about things that he had a hard time talking about with other people, and, um, and ended up telling truths there that were um, unusual to tell and, and hard to, hard to tell. So I, I don't I don't know those I don't know if that completely explains why he loved David Copperfield. It's also I think uh, just a marvelous book thematically. So what should Christian readers look out for in David Copperfield? Good question. I think one of the first things to look out for is the centrality of the child in this novel. Uh, at the heart of Dickens's vision was the idea that. Whatsoever you do to the least of these, you do unto me. Um, and that there is something, um, there's something that children understand that adults later tend to forget. Um, this is something that you could associate with English Romanticism more broadly with the poetry of Wordsworth and others. But it's very much rooted in the gospel, and that's where Dickens found it. Um, himself and so in david copperfield one of the things that we need to see as catholics is that <clears throat> he's trying to tell the truth about what the child sees that adults miss and especially um the spiritual and <clears throat> um how do i put it um the spiritual and heart realities that um, adults tend to explain away. <clears throat> One of the first things that 
the novel says about this is in an early chapter where the main character's father says, a loving heart is better than wisdom. And what he means by that is that uh, um, he, he's thinking of worldly wisdom, right? Well, like what is commonly said to explain the way the world is, that that there's something that uh, a loving heart perceives about other people and about the, the things that are most important in the world, the things that explain everything else, something that a loving heart perceives there that um, that cuts deeper than the common explanations. Um, and that so I think that that mysterious um, idea is at the heart of it. And, and there's something true about it. Are there any other points you would like to mention and or underline in David Copperfield? Um, yes, yes. A couple more points. One, and this is also, I think, finally, a theological point that Dickens makes in his own more intuitive way, um, because he, he was not a theologian uh, and not even very well educated uh, religiously. And yet he was a reader of, of his Bible and had his, had his um, fingers on certain really essential points that became very important to him. And one of them comes out in a character in David Copperfield named Mr. Dick, um, who is also a kind of code, um, coded reference to Dickens himself, right? Dick Dickens. Um, so this fellow, Mr. Dick, is a man who's undergone serious trauma in his life and is, is, uh, it's, it's damaged his mind in some ways. He's, he's left um, as a sort of adult child. Um, and yet, and, and so he's kind of a fool character, like you might see in Shakespeare or Dostoevsky. Um, and yet he sees deeper than a lot of the the, uh, the the serious adults around him um he says he says of himself at one point that dick's nobody he says i'm a nobody and that's a really important point for dickens because he thinks that nobodies tend to see things that somebodies don't <laughs> the heart of this is Christ's kenosis, Christ's self-emptying of himself in the incarnation where he became nothing in order to give us something. Dickens saw that and thought that's at the heart of things. There's a kind of self-emptying that needs to happen in order for us to in order us for us to to see the, the truth about the world, but also to give ourselves in love and uh, image God most fully. So this character, Mr. Dick, and other characters in the novel who become nobodies end up having also this, this kind of childlike insight into the, into the nature of things. Um, so I think that's uh, a mysterious truth in the midst of, of this novel. The other thing that I would mention, though, is that as a counterbalance to this emphasis on childlike wisdom is the is the uh, the the theme of immature childish adults 
Dickens also places some adults in the novel who are um, problematically childish, <laughs> who are not childlike in that affirmative sense. For example, uh, the, the main character's wife, David, marries a, a woman named Dora, who is who calls herself his child wife. Uh, it's a very strange um, depiction. And and um, in in their relationship, Dickens reflects and makes us all feel and even laugh at sometimes, uh, even as we're groaning, the the pro the undesirability of the, of a certain kind of immaturity and um, refusal to be an adult. Okay, so on the one hand, he has the virtue of a kind of childlikeness, and yet on the other hand, he has poised against it or poised in tension with it um, the undesirability of being immature in the wrong way. So, so the novel finally leaves us with a kind of tension between um, that, that everyone should have a kind, certain elements of sim childlike simplicity and humility, and yet certain kinds of um, adult responsibility and um, commitment to, to a life of serious work and earnestness and things like this. So I think that's one of the things that the novel does. And moving on to Bleak House, sure. it, it takes aim at the dysfunction of the English Chancery. And in 1928, William Sow Holdsworth, the Minerian Professor of Law at Oxford University, and author of a 17-volume on the history of English law, delivered the lecture Dickens as legal historian. Holdsworth singled out Bleak House in particular, and he praises Dickens for providing with information they cannot get. Have you picked Bleak House mainly or partly for its critique of the legal system or for other reasons? Um, I would say that's important, but more marginal for my own interests. And I think that for readers today, the uh, the merely uh, the, the kind of historical uh, interest of it in, in terms of the development of 19th century English institutions is not uninteresting, but but that there are ways that it there sheds light on our own condition that might be an even um, even more attractive connection. And what so what I would say there is that Chancery, as you just described it, with its um, kind of endless processes and and waste of people's time and money and lives is a tremendous image of the way that large-scale bureaucracies work in the modern world. We are still caught up in these, right, in the, in the first world that we inhabit in the 21st century. Uh, we are all but the beneficiaries and at times the victims of large bureaucratic machinery that that has been erected to make the modern economy work and the modern legal system and the, the, these kind of like trans-political bodies and 
in your case, the European Union and, and all, all of these uh, international institutions <clears throat> that kind of grind on, oftentimes in extreme abstraction from the lives of individual people. So that's just something that the novel is very interested in, is that large scale uh, way and way that uh, a civilization will, tr a modern civilization tries to uh, organize itself and then the small scale individual lives of people, um, which is where what we most care about really happens. Um, so that, I, I think that that dynamic is still very um, familiar to us, which is part of the interest of this novel. I still think there are actually uh, other, so that's a kind of political and social dimension, but I think that the actual, the per, interpersonal and moral dimensions of the novel are even more interesting than what I just described. I think that one of the most interesting things about the novel is there's a, a kind of balance between two narrators in the novel. One of the main narrators is a satirical, worldly wise um, kind of rational critic of the age in which he lives. He's the he's the the narrator who describes uh, the open the, the famous fog of the opening of Bleak House, and and describes <clears throat> Chancery with all its depredations and uh, the upper classes of the of that day. Um, so he's a very satirical, cutting um, kind of narrator. On the other hand, the other half of the novel, rather, there are these interspersed chapters that go back and forth between these two narrators. The other narrator is the main character, Esther Summerson, who writes in a first person, um, you know, autobiographical mode, telling the life of uh, her her friends and family as they touch her, her herself and she is a, a loving person who <clears throat> feels things deeply and sees everything through the lens of her own love for people um, she says i understand things better when i love when i love them uh, <laughs> and so you've got if if you want two narrator two narrators the kind of more cynical, more satirical head, and then the more the simpler, more uh, more loving heart, and they're played off of one another and poised between. Uh, they they leave us poised between them. One of the takeaways of the novel is that both of these dimensions are critically necessary if we're going to understand the truth about reality. Um, for Catholics, for Christian readers, um, I think there's a few things we can say about this novel that are, are relevant. One, as in David Copperfield, there is an emphasis on the least of these and on the nobodies of society. One of the characters' name is Nemo, uh, which of course means no one in Latin. And he and the main character, Esther, who is an, who is an orphan, who is Dis, you know, unloved as a child and dismissed. She's a nobody. And there's a there's a crossing sweeper named Joe, who is one of the most famous characters of uh, of his of the novel back in in the, in the Victorian period. These nobodies all have the most to give of anyone in the novel. 
Um, <clears throat> and that's something that so they end up witness they end up witnessing the power of God uh, the most of anyone in the novel. Um, and there are a number of places in the novel where through through the work of these um, suffering servants that you have in the novel, um, the doors are opened to heaven. <clears throat> um, they will there are there's a few scenes where someone someone is dying and one of these people will, will show uh, show the person how how to pray and kind of open the doors to heaven. Um, the gospel is very is is at the center of the novel. In in both in that way as it's preached through the words and lives of some of the characters, but then also in a negative way, in a satirical way, as it is um, kind of travestied by some of the by by a couple of preachers in the novel. There's a fellow named Mr. Chadband, who is this uh, comical depiction of of a certain kind of evangelical preacher who is all talk and no no life you know he has no um he has no actual lived love to give that will embody the gospel um and so dickens's narrator says very ironically at a certain point right that chad band and people like him bring this the this uh orphan child joe they 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 say the words to him of, of of the gospel and yet they don't bring him to christ um with with their lives so those are some themes that i think are relevant one last thing i would mention is the the centrality of forgiveness to the plot um the main character esther's mother is uh is ultimately <laughs> is is lives in fear of her husband not forgiving her for a past sin and ultimately this same sin uh, of her past which she cannot let go also alienates her from her daughter um esther the main character and it's partially because she won't accept that forgiveness and the mercy that that uh they want to give her so the, there's a kind of dynamic at the heart of it that the, there's a, a pride that will withhold forgiveness and then there's a pride that will actually not receive forgiveness uh and w which maybe we would uh you know more be more likely to overlook so those are some of the dynamics i think that are important thank you for listening to read or listen to the rest of this interview and gain full access to our archive, visit fivebooksforcatholics.com and become a premium subscriber. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and give it a top rating on the platform of your choice. That way more people can discover it. You can also support the podcast and help us produce more interviews like this one by making a one-off donation via the link given in the show notes. As little as $1 one pound or one Europe can help and will be greatly appreciated. Thank you once again, and God bless.